Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut, and of course, as always, I'm so happy that you are joining us uh, for today's show. Uh, let's get right to our panel because we have a lot to talk about. Greg Bluestein is with us. He joins us on Wednesdays as our partner from the AJC. He, of course, is political reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, uh, the author of Flipped, the book. Are you on the? Are you are you getting towards bestseller status with that book, uh, Bluestein? <laughs> The publishers just say they're very happy, so that's that's all I need to hear. <laughs> all right, and Greg also has joined uh, the NBC uh, team as an analyst for uh, elections. Uh, you'll see him on MSNBC and other NBC pl- platforms as well. Uh, Melita Easters is back with us. She, of course, is the founder and director of the Georgia Win List, an organization which identifies and supports women who are pro-choice, primarily for legislative uh, posts. Uh, Melita, this obviously has become a very big time for you and your organization, so thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. It's a busy time, for sure. And Leo Smith is uh, back with us. Engaged Futures is his government affairs firm. Leo, for a long time, has been active in Republican Party politics, used to work, actually, as the outreach director for the state Republican Party. I'm glad to have you here, Leo. Bill, looking Leo, forward to the show. You're, there you are. I didn't hear you for a second there. All right, let's do this. Uh, I want to talk about uh, some of the more interesting developments that we've been following in the last couple of days on, on the abortion, the Supreme Court abortion opinion, which we're still waiting to see the final, final form of. But before we do, real quickly, Greg, uh, you had an interesting story that I want to talk about in terms of the governor's race. Um, you reported this morning that uh, the Purdue camp, even though they lag far behind in terms of fundraising, they've raised less than $2 million in the last three months, uh, getting buried by both Brian Kemp in the primary and then in the, the eventual Democratic nominee, Stacey Abrams. But you report this morning that they've looked at some internal numbers that have been leaked out that give them some hope. What is that all about? Yeah, in the, in the context of this, the backdrop of this is exactly what you said. The, there's there's only a very slim chance he has, even at forcing a runoff, let alone you know a victory. He, they're not even talking about beating Brian Kemp in May. Um, their their main goal right now is to keep Brian Kemp under 50 percent and try to force a runoff, but that's not looking very likely, especially when you look at polls. And one of the big fundraising figures that came out showed that. Not only is he only raised um, 1.7 or so million dollars in the last three months, but David Perdue's only giving his loaning his campaign $500,000 of his own money, and that was always sort of the big question: Will, will he pump in a lot of money of his own money? And while $500,000 is no, you know, is no pocket change um, for a guy who's worth more than $50 million, uh, it kind of is. <laughs> and so that's the <laughs> that, that's the backdrop to all this. And um, but look, when, when David Perdue's camp looks at at the early voting numbers, they see reason to be enthusiastic. 
Uh, it might just be spin. Um, well, and probably a big portion of it is spin, but there is a surge in early voting turnout that has surprised even many Republicans. Um, and, um, and many of those are, are voters, Republican voters, that did not cast ballots in the 2018 midterm, but did cast ballots for Donald Trump in 2016 um, and 2020. So these, these suggest these are very avid Trump supporters um, <clears throat> who are coming out to these early votes. In, in, in big numbers. Um, now, what, if that really does translate to Purdue support, we just don't know because what we do know from polls are that a lot of um, avid Trump supporters are still back in camp despite his falling out with the former president. So that's a big question that we'll soon find an answer to. Well, Leo, another story that's of interest in terms of that is, <clears throat> and I assume it was Bluestein who, who wrote it, although I don't remember the byline off the top of my head, uh, Brian Kemp has done a tremendous job taking advantage of incumbency, especially throughout the bill signing period, where he has been able to showcase the conservative uh, 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 measures that he has passed through the legislature, red meat for his base. Uh, and one example that today, the governor is going to commemorate Memorial Day, which, wait a minute. It happens on May 30th, and yet he's doing it today uh, because May 30th falls after the primary election day. And you can never lose when you want to honor the men and women who have died in service to their country. But, but it's, it's an example of them using everything they can to uh, assure that people understand what he has been able to accomplish as governor. No, you know, absolutely. Controlling the mic controls the message. And, um, you know, people are getting tired of Purdue's message. This one message stolen the election campaign uh, Purdue is doing. I'm hearing grassroots Republicans start to get very tired of that. Speaking on what uh, Greg spoke of, I think that folks, you know, anger sort of drives people early to the polls. But that'll balance out as we go through this midterm. But Purdue has no believable attack on his conservative uh, rival here now um, on social issues, on economic growth, on job creation, on a new Kia uh, plant coming. You know, all of that is pro-pro-Kemp. So I could go on and on about what Kemp is doing that appeals to the conservative base, that makes the state strong, but I'm afraid Purdue can't go on about anything other than stolen election. And it, we're seeing the results. Um, Melita, meanwhile, Stacey Abrams continues. We know she suspended her own campaign uh, fundraising for her campaign because she wanted to help pro-choice groups raise money, which was uh, clearly a smart decision by the um, uh, Abrams campaign. Uh, nevertheless, she continues to put out positive messages in her advertising, and she will continue to raise millions of dollars for the uh, general election race, Yes. Absolutely. She will continue to take the high road, and she will continue to raise millions of dollars. I think what's interesting about these um, high voter turnout numbers is that we can't tell how many of these people voting in the Republican primary are actually Democrats who've crossed over for some reason mm -hmm. to vote for either Purdue or um, for Raffensperger because they don't like Jody Heiss. And so that's uh, an unknown factor in these voter turnout numbers. And then I think, you know, the other thing is that you have to look at that small amount relative to his entire net worth that Purdue has put into his own campaign. 
his head and his heart and his ego may be in this contest, but his wallet is decidedly not. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Greg? You know, Bill, what's interesting about Stacey Abrams' numbers is that um, the reports revealed that she spent already $6.5 million on ads. She spent 90% of what she raised over the last three months already. And it reflects a confidence from her that she can raise that much and more. You know, she's not trying to hoard her, her resources because she's become such a fundraising dynamo. So she is spending – I mean, she still has $8 million in the bank. She has plenty in the bank. Um, but she is spending this money aggressively, and she doesn't have a primary opponent. So all this money that she's raising for the for the primary, she can just spend on raising her name recognition. Well, not that she needs that that help for that, but at least raising, uh, broadening her message, and, uh, and and hiring staffers, and getting her TV message out and her digital message out, which is frankly the digital message right now is is almost as important, if not more important, to her than the TV message. Yeah, Melita, quick comment from you. Well, I was just going to say that the fact she's not. Um, hoarding her money tells me, and and most, I think, that she knows she has a high number of monthly donors, and she knows Mm. that that spigot will keep running. And that's not something which will reflect in any campaign disclosure report until you really start comparing names on a monthly basis. Um. I want to, we, I think many of you who have been listening to our radio station this morning know that we're in one of our few pledge uh, days of, of this spring. We haven't been doing many of them because we know you want to hear programming, not pitches to help us support the programming, but we do have to do that. Um, and so in just a minute, we're going to have to throw to a pledge break. Um but, Melita, I am really interested in what you just said about maybe Democrats crossing over to vote in Republican primaries. I thought at first when I heard this from people that it seemed like it just wasn't happening. But we're hearing more and more people say, Leo, that they're crossing over to give a vote either to Brad Raffensperger and thank him for uh, staying honest about the 2020 election or to Jody Heiss to try to— uh, uh, help out the eventual Democratic nominee for Secretary of State. Leo, quick comment on that. No, when I worked on the Secure the Vote project doing uh, community education uh, with Brad Raffensperger, uh, there were many Democrats who um, were in, in independence who really liked the work that he was doing. We wondered if this would be a strategy he'd be, be able to play on, and certainly they are using the Raffensperger campaign is depending on that strategy. They are actually uh, deploying that strategy. I think it's working. Yeah, of course, the question becomes, what if a Democrat votes for Raffensperger now, do they turn around and vote for the Democratic uh, candidate? If they vote for Raffensperger now, do they vote for the Democrat in the fall election? And uh, we'll see how that turns out. Okay, we are having a pledge show today. Um, I, we know that you want more programming and less talk about fundraising. But the point, the fact of the matter is we do need your support to keep Political Rewind moving Forward. It's become a part of your daily listening habit. Every day at 9 in the morning, 2 in the afternoon, we try to keep you informed in the smartest way possible about what's happening in politics in Georgia and across the country. So it's time for us to do our own crossover to the people who can help you uh, learn how you can help support GPB Radio. GPB Radio. 
Leo Smith, Melita Easters, Greg Bluestein, join us for today's Political Rewind. And by the way, thank you for the support you've given to GPB Radio. If you've been doing that, and if you haven't, I'd really encourage you to help us if you can. Um, all right, let's talk abortion because there's some really interesting uh, new uh, developments uh, to discuss. Um, first of all, Greg, we reported the other day on a YouGov Yahoo poll, which showed that if you look at, at a generic uh, a pairing of Republican members of Congress, uh, candidates for Congress and Democratic uh, uh, candidates for Congress, that people prefer Democrats who are pro-choice by 13 points over Republicans who are pro-life. Uh, now, those generic matchups are always, you know, somewhat squishy, but that does tell us something about the possibility that the whole dynamic of the election could change from this notion that Republicans are almost guaranteed to win control, at least of the House. Yeah, and it also reflects what the Democratic candidates are doing right now on the ground. And either they have data or it's a gut feeling or it's, you know, or it's a strong, uh, you know, it's, it's a strong underlying core belief. And it could be all three. Um, but instantly, almost instantly, you saw the Democratic campaigns change. Um, we, you heard Stacey Abrams say that this will literally reshape her campaign. Um, you know, she was always a, an abortion rights supporter, um, and it was always a part of her campaign message. But, but now it's a paramount issue in her campaign. Um, you're hearing the same from Senator Warnock. You're, and you're hearing the same from legislative candidates and down-ticket candidates. You know, um, long shots for Congress are putting this at the, at the, at the center of their campaign. Um, Jen Jordan, the leading Democrat for attorney general, is putting this at the center of her campaign. So you're hearing it up and down the ballot. And again, um, if, if, if this, is a, you know, this ends up becoming a, a major motivating factor, it could pay off for Democrats. But as Leo, Leo will say, too, this could also be a motivating factor for Republicans just as much. Um, Melita, this is a moment that you have been working for for the entire time that you have built your organization around identifying uh, pro-choice candidates, women candidates, Democrats, uh, to run for office. Um, what, what, but but it, the question becomes, do you think that, although you focus on the legislative races, can it have an effect in the legislature the way it is is possibly going to have in congressional candidates as well around the country? Absolutely, because women know that House Bill 481, the six-week abortion ban passed in 2019 in Georgia, passed with only one vote more than the requisite constitutional majority of 91 votes in the 180-member House. And since then... When list endorsed women have flipped three House seats. And, and we know that women can flip even more House seats in 2022, despite GOP gerrymandered maps. And so this issue leapfrogs over other issues that women may have cast votes on. And I'm hearing from a lot of Republican women, and yes, I do know a few, who um, are saying this is where we draw the line in the sand with our husbands about the reproductive freedom, the medical options available to our daughters and our granddaughters. Women like me who came of age just as Roe became the law of the land remember those girls who went away 
to homes for unwed mothers. We remember the people who who died as a result of, of back alley abortions. The, we, we, we don't want to go back there. And it is a very fundamentally important issue to women. Leo, there's no question that people who are pro-life, many of them, have in very, very sincere beliefs in the sanctity of life. Um, so we don't want to diminish their passion for their cause. But as a political issue, how do Republicans, we now know, Leo, that there are Georgia Republicans uh, in the legislature who are suggesting they'd like to have a special session if, uh, if the Supreme Court does overturn Roe to, in fact, outright ban abortion in Georgia. That may be a winning strategy to talk about for a primary, but is there room for Republicans to move a little bit more toward the middle when they have to run in a general election? Sorry, I'm muted. Sorry. The, be- the beauty of our democracy is that we do uh, get to allow voters to decide. And I think Republicans are going to be in a position to actually bringing that issue home. The, ch- the choice that people want in Georgia has already been a-, a-, a bit debated in the legislature in 2019 with the heartbeat bill. Kemp has, you know, sort of put his finger on that already, but he's been quiet. He's kept his, pe- his powder dry on this issue because I think it is going to be something that he'll moderate on a little bit more than, say, other states might. Um, we're looking at Texas and what Texas has done there. Kemp is very let business and commerce take place. Um, I'm not so sure that Georgia will be as radical as people might expect, and I think that's how Republican strategists will advise that the governor and others um, manage their campaigns. The national impact that Schumer has, though, Bill, I mean, what Schumer is proposing at Congress, where Stacey Abrams and others may say Congress is the solution, but right now they're proposing a nine-month, you know, abortion allowance. And I don't think Georgians will support that. Um, I, I, a couple of questions about that. Um, I'm not <laughs> sure that Brian Kemp has kept his powder dry. I was under the impression, Greg, you would know, that, that the Kemp campaign released a statement after the leak of the document saying that they will always protect the sanctity of of life, but that they were equally disturbed by the fact the document was leaked, right, Greg? Yeah, I think what Leo's referring to is the fact that he hasn't gone as far as David Perdue and other Republicans in saying that he would support an outright ban of all abortions, including right. cases okay. of rape, incest, and where the life of the mother is at stake. And that is where we're seeing a, a very, I think, in some ways, new divide among Republicans is that we have all four candidates, Republican candidates for lieutenant governor. We have all the Republican candidates for Senate. Um, and we have David Perdue, not to mention many down-ticket Republicans, who are all saying, staking a, uh, you know, staking a place in the debate, saying that they would support an outright ban, a total ban on abortions. Um, it's a position Governor Kemp hasn't endorsed yet. Um, and frankly, as Maliva was talking about earlier, um, he and others, including including you know the people on this panel, remember how divisive that debate in 2019 was um, to get uh, the the fetal a ban on abortions um, as early as six weeks in Georgia, um, when the outcome of Roe v. Wade was still uh, up in the air, and so it, that passed with one vote in the Georgia House to spare. Yeah. So even thinking that a total ban could happen 
um, seems a long shot. Uh, Melita, you wrote a fascinating essay in which you uh, uh, suggest to us that uh, Georgia is a more progressive state on the issue of choice than people realize. Uh, give us just a couple of highlights of what you wrote. Well, long before um, Roe v. Wade and Doe v. Bolton, the companion case of which arose out of Georgia was argued before the Supreme Court. Georgia had a progressive history for policies allowing women access to a full range of um, reproductive medical services. And in fact, Georgia had um, Georgia women had greater access to some of those services than in many states, including the Northeast. And then Georgia really was, even after um, Roe v. Wade, Georgia led the Southeast for access to abortion care. One thing which gets lost, and Leo mentioned um, this, is the, the, what the business community will do for longstanding employee benefit packages that promise access to abortion care in states which outlaw it. And we're already seeing some of the companies issue statements that if, if my, our employees live in a state which outlaws abortion, we will pay the expenses for them to receive that care their colleagues in other states receive. So I think it's going to be very interesting to see what corporate America, which has long provided reproductive care to women, does about this issue and whether pro-business governors like Brian Kemp likes to claim he is, heed the call of corporate CEOs not to go too far in overturning Roe v. Wade with state regulation. Leo? Hi, so Melita is right on point. I think the challenge for us as conservatives, as Republican leaders in this highly divisive environment that we're in, is to remain conservatives in principle. I mean, the idea of sort of yielding to commerce, the employer, the position as an employer, um, the physician's right to practice. And those things are things that typically Republicans support those kinds of rights, but now we're challenged. But again, what Greg was pointing out is that I said, again, the messaging coming from Schumer in Congress is a pretty extreme nine-month abortion allowance. And the fact is, is that the message coming from the state of Georgia, at least, is that we're going to talk about it. It's a little bit more moderated than the actual message from Congress. And that's going to kind of equivocate the whole argument, I think. Is, is the Schumer, Melita, real quick, because we got to go to a break, but is the Schumer bill or the bill that the Senate is going to debate, it, it doesn't call for abortion all the way through the entire pregnancy, does it? I can't speak to that because I haven't read the full bill, but... Yeah, I'm going to look at it. And I'm sorry. No, no, that's all right. I do want to, I, I, I do want to talk about that when we get some, some facts behind that, because I'm not doubting Leo, but I just hadn't realized that. All right, look, um, I hate to end, end the segment on a moment of indeci- uh, indecisiveness, not understanding what's happening, but we will research that. Uh, In the meantime, uh, it's pledge time, so we're going to send you over to the people who can help uh, you understand how you can help us.
Wow, a lot of real-time fact-checking about the question of what the uh, Democrats' abortion bill would do. Let me read to you from the Washington Post. Uh, And I thank my panelists on the show today for also weighing in with uh, quotes that they got. The Democratic bill outlaws any limitation on abortion before fetal viability, which was established by uh, Casey, while allowing abortions after viability, quote, when in the good faith medical judgment of the treating health care provider, continuation of the pregnancy would pose a risk to the pregnant patient's life or health. So you can imagine, Greg Bluestein, that both sides are going to spin this. The Fox News website simply says nine months. Women can have abortions all the way through their pregnancy. This is going to be spun both ways, Greg. You're muted, Greg. My bad. Um, at the same time, Senate yeah. Minority Leader Mitch McConnell says that um, he would pursue um, uh, an abortion legislation, or he could pursue abortion legislation that would ban abortions or at least restrict abortions nationwide if the Senate flips hands and becomes uh, goes under GOP control. So you're going to hear a lot of this between now and November um, because um, so much is at stake. Absolutely. All right. I want to take up another aspect of the um, uh, uh, SCOTUS opinion, leaked opinion, that I thought was really fascinating. Um, uh, uh, Greg, your colleague, Shannon McCaffrey, uh, wrote a piece the other day pointing out that um, if the SCOTUS decision is to overturn Roe, we know that it will then become up to the states to decide what they want to do. We know that that Georgia Republicans will move quickly to certainly immediately uh, begin to enforce the so-called fetal heartbeat law um, and that it will be challenged in the courts. What we've learned is that there is a 100 year old opinion in the state Supreme Court about the right to privacy that pro-choice advocates could use to challenge uh, whether or not uh, the uh, abortion could be either banned or severely restricted in Georgia. Talk about that. Yeah, this is so fascinating. It's a 1903 case uh, that made Georgia one of the first in the nation to recognize an enforceable right to privacy, um, the same right at the center of the Roe v. Wade decision. Um, and, you know, Shannon, my colleague Shannon McCaffrey, she interviewed Republicans and Democrats, lawyers, um, who, who said – you know, really, this this sort of challenge on these grounds would have a legitimate chance of success. Attorney Steve Sadow used the same ruling in 1998 to persuade the Georgia Supreme Court to strike down the state's anti-sodomy law. So it succeeded in previous challenges. Um, so so you, we've heard from Jen Jordan, the Democratic candidate for attorney general, and other Democratic lawyers who say they will immediately um, use this law if, if Roe v. Wade is struck down. They would immediately file a challenge uh, with this law, with this uh, court holding as its basis to try to strike down or to preserve access to abortion um, uh, in Georgia. Leo, uh, what we know is that if this uh, Alito ruling holds, that it is going to spark some of the fiercest fighting that the state of Georgia has ever seen. Yes. We do know that, and I, again, appeal to people to peacefully do that fighting and not follow some of the examples 
<clears throat> that we're seeing where we're seeing violence um, erupt on this issue. This is already uh, something that's animating uh, a lot of lawyers uh, with pre-filings, and we're going to see a lot of lawsuits. Um, we're going to see this used in campaigns quite a bit, but we must have people pursue this issue and campaign in a way that's respectful for civic, civil uh, civil order. Um, Melita, how do you see lawsuits challenging the fetal heartbeat law unfolding? I think it will be very interesting to watch those filings. I think the fact that Jen Jordan has been extensively quoted on this shows that she, as an, an attorney who's actually been in front of the court and argued cases like this in the past, would be a very um, upfront attorney general to protect women's right to choose. So I do think this is going to be a very big campaign issue. And I, I understand Leo's concern about civility and nonviolent protests. But the thing we have to remember is that the very Supreme Court of the United States, which has erected high fences and concrete barriers for self-protection, has allowed First Amendment protests outside abortion clinics for decades. So they're applying a different standard to the women seeking medical care than they have for themselves in the midst of a controversial ruling. Okay. Um, we will watch all of this play out in the weeks and months ahead, uh, obviously. Um, I want to turn to a couple more items in political news uh, right now, if I can. Greg, um, we know that uh, Governor Kemp believes that one of the crowning achievements in his work to uh, uh, bring new businesses to Georgia was the uh, acquisition of Rivian. The Rivian Vehicle Assembly Plant, which is going to uh, be built out in East Georgia, there are protests out there. David Perdue's made it a big issue. But the fact of the matter is it, there's very little to stop this from moving forward, and it will bring 7,500 new jobs into uh, the state at least. Now, on top of that, as he rolls out his, more of his campaign initiatives, we're now learning that the state is deeply engaged in working with Hyundai Motors, uh, which already has a Kia plant over in West Point to bring a new electrical vehicle plant down to the Savannah area. Um, this is another feather in Brian Kemp's political cap, I think you have to say, yes? Well, this, this if it comes to fruition, and we believe it will, but a lot of things can change, <clears throat> but if it comes to fruition, this would be the biggest economic development project in Georgia history, topping Rivian, by about 1,000 jobs. This, we're talking about 8,500 jobs. And then, of course, all the spinoff jobs that are created by uh, suppliers and then, of course, the you know, service industry, all the different jobs that, that, that go with a big, giant plant like this. Um, and, you know, for, for Kemp's opponents, it's a lot harder to attack Hyundai or Kia than it is Rivian. Rivian is still an unknown quantity to many Georgians. I mean, frankly, when I reported about this, I hadn't really heard of Rivian before. Um, Hyundai, Kia, household name, right? Is in Georgia, particularly because of the Kia plant at West Point, that, by the way, that David Perdue's own first cousin, Governor Sonny Perdue, at the time, um, helped the track. So we haven't heard David Perdue or many critics um, raising issues about um, the Hyundai-Kia deal that seems to be coming um, uh, down the pipeline. And you better believe that Governor Kemp is, is antsy to try to announce this before the May 24th primary. So we'll see if that happens. 
Um, but it, it would be a huge jobs deal um, and really transformative for that region around coastal Georgia. So, uh, Leo, uh, uh, the governor's put a, a lot of stake in certainly building the Rivian plant and in establishing Georgia as a, a primary state for electric vehicles. We've got battery plants coming in. We've got uh, Rivian, maybe a new plant down near Savannah. But, but Leo, we have talked on this show before about the fact that Rivian, which came out of the gate sounding like one of the strongest possible new businesses uh, on the stock exchange in terms of valuation, has taken a terrible beating. Its stock has plummeted. They have now cut the number of vehicles they say they're going to be able to produce at their existing plant in Illinois. Their deal to produce vehicles for Amazon seems to be in some jeopardy. It strikes me, Leo, that if you're Brian Kemp and the people around him, you are holding your breath throughout, if assuming he wins the primary, through the summer and into the fall as to whether Rivian is the real deal or not. Yeah, yeah, it it is getting a little diffuse, but it is still a plus up. I mean, the fact is the deal is going to happen. Um, I think this was politically sort of uh, generated rather than actually fully generated by the citizens. And I'm seeing Rivian uh, trucks when I'm in the car line at school, when I'm dropping my kids off and picking kids up. I'm seeing the trucks around town now. That's going to sort of bring people up a little bit. And then you've got the balance of him saying, I'm going to help southern Georgia. I'm going to help rural Georgia. And he's actually delivering on that in Savannah and in uh, east uh, Georgia as well. I don't think there's any question that he's, you know, he's been a guy who's done a lot of economic development, but I'm wondering, Melita, if Leo's seeing the same five Rivian trucks in various <laughs> locations, because they really have not turned out an Very. awful lot of trucks uh, lately. <laughs> well, Rivian has had its big issues since its IPO. But I think the, the thing that we all need to be cautious about is the supply chain issues for the production of electric batteries and the um, underlying components of those batteries and where they're sourced from. Because I'm hearing a lot of concern about supply chain issues that would affect and impact all the production of electric vehicles. And it's also the same issue you have with solar panels. And so um, the supply chain impacts new industry just as it does existing industry. You know, I'm glad Melita pointed that out, Greg, from this point of view. Right now, we can talk about, um, you know, Rivian and Hyundai uh, as campaign issues that an incumbent governor might use to his advantage. But we really have to look at the larger picture. These are economic development uh, projects that will bring jobs to the state of Georgia, regardless of whether it was a Republican or a Democrat who did it. And there's no reason to not want to see Georgia continue to grow jobs for the people of the state. You know, but for a long time, auto plants were looked at as the big fish, the elusive whale that Georgia just couldn't reel in um, after losing a lot of uh, car plants earlier on um, in, in the, the latter half of the, uh, of the last century. Um, and, and Kia was that first big sign. But these are high-paying jobs. That, that's why the state is, is so aggressive about trying to attract them. Um, in the Rivian Economic Development Incentive Package, we learned that the average job is $56,000. Um, 
for an area uh, that, that is that is often overlooked economically. Um, so that and, and and that's just the median price, right? So there's some jobs that are well over that, and some that are not. Um, and we're not sure of exactly what, how how well paying these Kia Hyundai jobs would be, uh, but we imagine they're in the same ballpark. So um, this is this is transformative economically, as I mentioned earlier, and that's why this is such a a big deal, Democrats or Republicans, uh, to the future of Georgia. Melita, but both parties will need to take a strong look at the prices paid in terms of incentives for bringing these jobs to the state. How high a price does each job cost the taxpayers in the long run? Are we giving away the store? Uh, Absolutely. An issue that I would assume uh, will get a lot of scrutiny in the months ahead. Leo, a final word from you before we have to go. Yeah, I think that's important what Melita brings up. We've seen uh, that debate happen when it comes to um, gaming companies coming here, when it comes to uh, movie production companies, and really uh, the incentive packages have won out when it comes to that public debate. All right. Um, We are out of time for today's show. Leo Smith, Melita Easters, who, by the way, I, I should have said when I introduced you, people can watch you now on The George Gang on Sunday mornings on Fox 5. It's fun to see you there. And, of course, Greg Bluestein, always glad to have you as my partner on the Wednesday show. Thank you all for a terrific conversation today. Uh, That's it. We're going to get out of the way a little early because we want to remind you that this is a pledge day, and we would love your support to keep Political Rewind going. Here's how you can do it. I will see you tomorrow. In the meantime, please take care and stay healthy.